daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi exchanges views about bilateral relations with New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Winston Peters. A number of international institutions and big banks expect global growth to slow in 2024. The Supreme Court in the U.S. state of Colorado barred Donald Trump from the state's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has exchanged views about bilateral relations with New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Winston Peters in a phone conversation on Tuesday. Wang Yi said the international situation has undergone complex and profound changes, but the importance of the ties between China and New Zealand has not changed. The complementarity between the two economies has not changed, and China's positive attitude and policy of advancing China-New Zealand relations has not changed. Wang Yi urged the two sides to start the negotiation on a negative list for service trade as soon as possible and to continue to promote high-quality development of economic and trade cooperation. For his part, Peters expressed condolences over the earthquake in China's Gansu province. He said New Zealand attaches great importance to its relations with China and is willing to push for the continuous development of bilateral ties to safeguard and promote the common interests of the two countries. Peters said New Zealand looks forward to strengthening cooperation with China in such areas as trade and tourism to make up for the losses caused by the pandemic. Now, for more, we're joined by Chen Hong. He is director of New Zealand Studies Center at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Thank you, Professor Chen. It's good to have you back on the show. Now, Professor, what do you know about the career of Winston Peters, uh, who currently serves as New Zealand's both uh, deputy prime minister and foreign minister? Yeah, Winston Peters is 78 years old. He's one of the oldest figures in New Zealand politics who is still you know, politically active, very active indeed. He founded a minor political party called New Zealand First mm. and has been labeled as a populist you know, politician. But in, in New Zealand politics, you know, minor parties are important, extremely important, as they can play a vital role in important political directions, in particular with reference to the uh, formation of a new government with a new you know, election. So Peter's new uh, you know, the New Zealand First Party has repeatedly been playing the role of a kingmaker. So after the uh, 2017 uh, you know, election, Jacinda Ardern's Labour Labour Party was caught up in a hand parliament scenario in which Labour alone could mm-hmm. not form a majority government. So Winston Peters reached an agreement with Ardern to form a coalition you know, government with Labour. So Peters became the uh, uh, deputy prime minister and also the foreign minister at the time. That is what I always find fascinating about you know, New Zealand's uh, politics, you know, two different parties with distinctively you know, different ideologies and mm. policies would agree to put aside differences to work out an, agree- uh, an arrangement which would sustain a government to run for three years. Mm. And there were, of course, differences in you know, internal and foreign policies and outlook. But the coalition government became the, the way to break the hand parliament dilemma and navigate New Zealand into a new era which is why I said you know, New Zealand politics is indeed remarkable in its own right. Mm. And this time, once again this year, the National Party under Christopher Luxon had to seek support from Winston Peters' new New Zealand First Party, along with the uh, ACTD Act Party under David Seymour. So uh, it is now a three-party coalition government mm. over there in New Zealand. So Peters has uh, been sometimes uh, distinctively deviating from the main, mainstream policies, like his notions, and the policies about immigrants, about social cohesion. You know, one example is that after he took office as deputy prime minister, he started to argue for the abandonment of the use of uh, Maori, you know, uh, language in official mm. documents mm-hmm. and official occasions. And he himself, you know, Peters himself has Maori ancestry, but he has been arguing that the official language of uh, New Zealand is English, so the mm. highly symbolic use of Maori language is 
not congruous from the reality and is prevalent use in the official scenarios should be abandoned. So very interesting guy when right. he does. Mm, indeed, very interesting and uh, clearly very seasoned uh, leader in New Zealand uh, politics. Now, Professor, yes. in general, how would you comment on the current level of China-New Zealand uh, relations? Mm. Uh, the China-New Zealand relationship has always been in the lead among China's relationship with uh, other Western countries. The bilateral cooperation has created you know, many firsts, which have you know, in turn been steadily profitable to both countries and peoples, China and New Zealand have enjoyed a comprehensive strategic partnership since 2014. You know, as a matter of fact, since uh, December 1972, when the two countries established a diplomatic relationship, proactive and robust bilateral exchanges and cooperation have uh, reaped immense mutual benefits to the economic, social, and cultural development in both countries. You know, bilateral trade, for example, at the time of the uh, establishment of their diplomatic relationship was only about seven million mm-hmm. New Zealand, you know, dollars. But in twenty twenty two, last year, it was as high as forty billion New Zealand dollars. Wow. So China has been New Zealand's biggest trade partner, the biggest export market mm-hmm. and the biggest source of uh, import. Thirty percent of New Zealand's commodity and service exports are destined for China. And you know, last year the upgrade for the New Zealand China free trade agreement entered into force. So the latest trade Policies and business practices have been incorporated to include new areas. So the bilateral relations between our two countries and is and has been proactive, dynamic, contributing uh, contributing to their economic growth, social prosperity, and cultural diversity in both mm. countries. Right. Well, uh, granted, uh, New Zealand and China enjoy uh, quite robust trade and economic relations. uh, But we also have to remember that New Zealand is, uh, of course, uh, an American ally. And uh, there's... uh, there's been discussion about, uh, you know, the China approach uh, by the New Zealand government. So, Professor, how does the China policy of New Zealand's uh, current government look like? Yeah, one thing I think I must add is that today, you know, New Zealand's new prime minister, you know, uh, Christopher Luxon, is visiting Australia. It's the first overseas visit as New Zealand's prime minister. Right. And he regards that visit, this visit as the most important. Meanwhile, also on today, you know, Winston Peters, has this uh, telephone call, you know, telephone conversation with Foreign Minister Wang Yi. So from this perspective, you can see a keen strategic interest that Winston Peters, you know, New Zealand's top diplomat, is taking, you know, in his uh, country's relations with uh, China. So now, you know, you know, during and after the, uh, uh, you know, uh, election in October, both parties, the winning National Party and also the outgoing, you know, uh, Labour uh, Party, which had, had been you know, defeated, both parties articulated clearly that they would adhere to the uh, constructive and mutually beneficial relationship with uh, China. So, in other words, there is indeed a bipartisan, you know, consensus, you know, a convergence of policies and outlooks that attaches, you know, importance to the ongoing, you know, the ongoing constantly developing partnership that has been based on mutual respect and mutual understanding, striving for mutual benefits that serve. As the, uh, uh, as the most important pillar for both countries and peoples in the bilateral relations. Mm. So we are, of course, in a drastically changing world, as uh, uh, Mr. Wang Yi said. The international situation has undergone complex and profound changes. But I think actually the new government in New Zealand is aware of the very positive and highly important linkage between our two countries, you know, and would be able to make judicious uh, you know, assessments of their international developments and to make prudent geostrategic decisions. Right. Well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, New Zealand created quite a few uh, firsts, uh, mm-hmm. you know, between relations, uh, among relations between China and Western countries. Uh, that's one thing that Wang Yi talked about during the conversation. He said that's the spirit of striving to be first, which is zheng xian in Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, New Zealand is the first uh, to sign an FTA with China among Western economies, uh, the first to grant China market economy status, etc. I mean, Professor, why does this spirit of striving to be first matter? How much does it matter for this relationship? Yeah, uh, Mr. Wang Yi said, you know, know, uh, in his conversation with uh, Peter today, that China is willing to uh, maintain high-level exchanges with New Zealand and continue to carry forward the uh, 
spirit, as you said, striving to be the first, mm -hmm. which would, you know, serving as an example of mutual respect, mutual benefit and win-win results for countries with different, you know, systems, civilizations and sizes. Over the 51 years of bilateral relationship between, you know, China and New Zealand, both countries, you know, have been you know, able to seek mutual interests and common grounds. It is true that the two countries have different, you know, systems of governance and cultural traditions, you know, like China with other countries. But for 51 years, such disparities have never hindered the yeah, pro progress of our constructive partnership. So successive governments in Wellington, in New Zealand, have been working in conjunction with their counterparts here in Beijing to seek common grounds on which, you know, fruitful collaboration have been flourishing and also booming. So I think that is why Mr. Wang is stressed upon the uh, exemplary role our bilateral relationship is able to serve for other countries that China has, you know, uh, likewise been engaged in constructive relationships. Mm. Well, Professor, we have a minute and a half before we wrap mm. up this topic. Uh, but uh, Peter said Pacific countries, as Pacific countries, uh, New mm. Zealand and China uh, should work on fields like uh, climate change uh, so as to benefit to Pacific island countries. Now, how, how do we understand this and what can China and New Zealand do, you know, to, to really bring benefit to Pacific island countries? Uh, firstly, I want to stress that China acknowledges the fact that New Zealand has historical and traditional links with the Pacific Island countries, right. which are very close indeed. You know, New Zealand itself is a Pacific country, or in fact also an island country. So China acknowledges and respects New Zealand's deep, you know, complex and long-standing relationship with the PIC, the Pacific Island countries. The Pacific Island countries have been facing with the extremely confronting challenges from climate change, for example. So, in fact, some of the low-lying, you know, island countries are facing, you know, with the imminent inundation, with the rising sea temperatures. Mm -hmm. So, China has ongoing and a very successful cooperation with the island countries with great outcomes. So, both China and New Zealand are able to contribute to their relief efforts to combat aftermath from climate change, combat natural disasters, and also, you know, China and New Zealand are able to work together to improve their, uh, you know, economic development in the uh, you know, island countries and improve and upgrade the uh, island you know, infrastructure, right. lift mm -hmm. their education and health le levels. So mm -hmm. in other words, the partnership is not just a bilateral, but could work conjointly to contribute right. to the stability and prosperity of the Pacific region. Mm, thank you. That was Chen Hong, Director of New Zealand Studies Centre at East China Normal University. Coming up, international institutions and big banks expect global growth to slow in 2024. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A number of international institutions and big banks expect global growth to slow in 2024 due to elevated interest rates, higher energy prices and geopolitical uncertainties. But most of them see slim chances of a recession. The OECD projects global GDP growth of 2.9% this year, followed by a mild slowdown to 2.7% in 2024. Goldman Sachs forecasts 2.6% world economic growth next year, while Morgan Stanley projects 2.8%. So what's the global economic outlook for the next year? To better understand this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Chief Economist Wang Dan of Hang Seng Bank China. First of all, a number of international institutions and big banks now they are expecting the global growth will likely to slow in the year 2024. So what's your estimation and what are the main challenges lying ahead? Uh, it is very likely that 2024 will be more difficult than this year. And there are, of course, reasons for optimism on growth. Uh, for example, the real disposable income growth in this environment uh, of uh, lower headline inflation is better than before. 
And the labor markets remain quite strong. And that means the labor, especially the union, has stronger power than before. The equilibrium wage is higher. Uh, although we expect that the U.S. real income growth to slow from this year, it will still remain the fastest growing economy uh, among the G7 countries. And so overall, I don't think that there's uh, too much to worry about the growth in 2024. But to say that it will have a great rebound, I think it's too early to say. Mm. And a lot of uh, economists say that many big economies will avoid the uh, recession next year. So do you agree or do you think the countries like Germany will avoid the technical recession in the year ahead? For the U.S., it might be easier to avoid a recession um, because it has already started to talk about maybe they want to lower the interest rate. But for the European economies, it's going to be a lot more difficult because the domestic fundamentals are much weaker, especially when it comes to the manufacturing center uh, like Germany or uh, Poland. Then we see this strong inflationary pressure remain. Uh, and that's closely tied with the Ukraine crisis. And for Germany in particular, it has been the weakest performing G7 economy since 2019. And its economy is quite reliant on uh, manufacturing, uh, especially the car industry. So that's quite volatile uh, when it comes to this reverse of globalization. And that's why I don't think the German economy will see a strong rebound. And therefore, the European economy will also face headwinds. Mm. And for the U.S. and most of the countries in Europe, will inflation continue to cool? It certainly seems that the goods inflation are already cooling by a great deal, uh, especially in the U.S. But when it comes to wage inflation, uh, it just doesn't seem to be on the same page. Uh, In the U.S., we have seen multiple negotiations in major industries like car and medical services. Usually the wage increase after the renegotiation would be around 25%. And this much of the wage inflation will translate into consumption. And that means there's a high chance, actually, next year we will see uh, at least a temporary increase in uh, the U.S. inflation. And it will put pressure again on how much the Federal Reserve has to hike the interest rate. Mm. And will the central banks like the Federal Reserve and ECB cut the interest rates next year? Because the Federal Reserve, the ECB and Bank of England all left interest rates unchanged this month, but signaled a different path for the policies going forward. So could you elaborate on it? Um, Cutting of the interest rate seemed to be a consensus of uh, major central banks. And the main reason of that is, of course, it has put so much pressure on its domestic industries and especially on the housing market. Uh, For the U.S., the Federal Reserve has been talking about the possibility of uh, at least reducing the interest rate by the end of 2024. Uh, So far, it seems to be possible, but still a very slim chance. Um, The main uh, pressure is still from the labor market. As far as we can tell, the labor market has to stay quite tight uh, throughout 2024 because uh, the wage inflation is simply too high. There is still a high enthusiasm in setting up new companies. Uh, The startup investment is also at an all-time high. And for European economies, the situation is more dire because the ECB is quite keen on bringing down the inflation further. Uh, Their political decision-making process is also slower than the U.S., because uh, the European leaders need to get a consensus first before they can implement a monetary policy. And that means there might be a longer lag uh, when it comes to the impact of monetary tightening. And when it comes to reversing the monetary stance, it might take even longer. Mm. And what about Africa's role in the global growth? Africa, unfortunately, it's still not a global economic engine. And the main reason is that uh, the average income growth and the infrastructure spending is still relatively low. For uh, the European or the American investors, Africa remains a center uh, 
destination when it comes to mining, because they also want to secure more of the metal supplies uh, when it comes to the green transition. Um, but for other industries, there's a clearly a lack of interest. And economists say Asia is expected to continue to account for the bulk of global growth in the next year. So how do you view it? Uh, Asian economy is the brightest spot since 2019 for the global growth. And when we look at Uh, the different levels of performance is quite clear that India and China will remain the two engines for the Asian economy and also for the global economy. Um, there is some shift uh, when it comes to the supply chain relocation uh, in this new global context because uh, we have to face it. The U.S.-China competition will last for a longer time. And many of the companies have to secure some markets outside of China. Uh, India seems to be a good alternative um, because its market is quite big. The consumer market is especially um, encouraging. And we have seen a better performance in the Indian retail market, in the Indian stock market, And even for the infrastructure, uh, it also has much better performance than a few years back. Mm. Um, for the developed countries in Asia, uh, like Japan or Singapore, their economy are holding up quite well uh, to many people's surprise, especially Japan. Um, Japan had been this textbook era When it comes to when it comes to the monetary response to economic crisis, but it seems that it finally climbed out of that last 20 years. The housing market seemed to be stronger.、Uh, the immigration policy has improved quite tremendously since three years ago,、um, and even the domestic wage has been increasing. So it seems that、uh, the Asian economy has more reasons to be optimistic. Mm. And for China, given that China's economy is now more and more connected with the global market, how to ensure a sustainable growth and deal with those challenges posed by geopolitical tensions and the disruptions in the global supply chains? China's economy、um, faces multiple challenges at the same time.、Um, domestically,、uh, it is mostly the drag from the housing market. Uh, people now have accepted the fact that probably we won't go back to a housing boom、uh, in a similar fashion like 2020.、Uh, in the long term, we'll go to a more rational、uh, growth in this pillar industry. But when it comes to the supply chain, the strength still remains, and the guiding principle for China's growth strategy. Has been economic security, and that means more resources will be directed into the high-tech sector,、uh, especially the ones listed in the Central Economic Work Conference, including the new energy supply chain, aeronautics and astronautics,、uh, biotech, and so on. And that is a foundation for longer-term growth.、Mm, so, what do you think is the outlook for China's economy in the year 2024, and what are the promising sectors? Um, people seem to be more optimistic about the growth in 2024.、Uh, this year, we will almost certainly hit the five percent target, and next year, hitting another five percent growth is not that difficult, given that the infrastructure spending will still be the main engine for the domestic economy.、Um, there are a lot of new green projects that have already started. Uh, and we have noticed、uh, multiple water projects, water conservation projects,、uh, cross-provincial high-voltage transmission、uh, grid lines, and、uh, data centers. All those things are tied to the industrial transition towards a high-tech,、uh, more、uh, like a greener economy. That was Wang Dan,、uh, chief economist of Hengsheng Bank, China. You're listening to World Today. After the break, Donald Trump was barred from Colorado's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot. You're listening to World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break.
Ellard, Economics Professor and Member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The Supreme Court in the U.S. state of Colorado has disqualified former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot. The case was brought by a group of Colorado voters who argued that Trump should be disqualified for his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by his supporters. Trump's team has vowed to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, for more, we're joined by Joseph Syracuse. He is dean of global futures with Curtin University. Thank you, Professor, for joining us again. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, Professor,、um, first of all, could you please explain to us in more details about the ruling? I mean, what are the main arguments of the Colorado Supreme Court? Well, there's a little bit of context here.、Mm. Trump's、uh, critics and enemies have gone after him since he got elected the first time. First, it was the Mueller report, and then the first impeachment, then the second impeachment, and then after the January 6 riot, which got out of hand,、uh, they're accusing him of insurrection. Now, under an obscure section of、uh, the 14th Amendment, they're trying to say that、uh, any officer of the United States government who was part of the insurrection—the insurrection, insurrection here—is the Civil War, 1861 to 1865. They're saying anyone who's part of an insurrection, and they're saying the events of January 6 is an insurrection, which has yet to be proved in court and was not proved during the impeachment proceedings.、Uh, then Trump should be disqualified from the primary ballot in the state of Colorado, which only has nine electors. Now, what、um, of nine electoral votes, which makes this case uh, uh, pretty important right now in the United States? This is the first time、mm. uh, a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court. Has gone after a president, a president in this fashion. So it's the novelty that makes it newsworthy. Will it hold up at the Supreme Court level? I doubt it because、uh, they're yet to prove that、uh, there was a real insurrection. And, and more importantly, Trump's、uh, lawyers will argue that he's not an officer of the government. He he was appointed by the people. It's, they're not releasing or they're not going after somebody appointed by Trump or his government. That he's at the top of the pecking order. So they're saying that、uh, this this legislation or this particular ruling, which I think was、uh, four or three or something like that,、mm. um, won't 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 ha- hold up. On the other hand, of all of Trump's、uh, critics and enemies、uh, are 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 sort of taking this story to heart and they're talking about it's the end of Trump. It's not the end of Trump at all. On the other hand, his supporters are are getting、um, uh, very anxious and some of them are even getting paranoid. About the lengths to which uh, to which uh, Trump's enemies would go after him,、mm. uh, you know, and you know, Americans are like everybody else; they like a good courtroom drama,、mm. and this is a court, good courtroom drama. <laughs> Now, Professor,、uh, as you said,、uh, hinted already. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court in the country, is somewhat divided.、Um, in details, how do you think the case will be dealt with? Professor. Well, they're looking at the technical grounds. No、mm. matter who appointed whom to the Supreme Court, when these men and women get to this level, they tend to do their own thinking. They're not paid and bought and paid for by a political party. And it's a good possibility that this case will be thrown out、uh, on its merits, not not on any political judgment、mm. like Roe v. Wade or anything like that. It'd be on its political merits. Does the、uh, Colorado Supreme Court have the right to?、Uh, Disqualify the former president based on their interpretation of the third section or third clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. I doubt it. They think they did, and of course the presumption here is he's committed a crime. I saw all the events of January six. Looks like a riot that got、uh, out of control. I don't think、uh, Trump was trying to overthrow the government, and if he did, he did a very bad job of it.、Mm. Well, Trump didn't win Colorado in 2016 or 2020. So, how do you think this ruling will affect his prospect in this state this time around? 
Oh, well, because uh, most Coloradoans, and I lived there for 12 years, are mm-hmm. congregated in the big cities like Denver. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to vote Democratic anyway. So Trump's chances of winning there are very slim. He doesn't need it. He needs Minnesota. He needs Michigan. He needs Wisconsin. Right. He knows those swing states. I mean, the election is divided by uh, about three states and 100,000 voters. So the, the, the case of Colorado coming to the party is almost beside the point. The important point is, is that a Supreme Court, the highest body in the state of Colorado, has uh, has said the president is uh, disqualified from being on the ballot. Now, that's uh, been held up till January 4th to give yes. the Supreme Court mm. plenty of time to go after well, on that, Professor, uh, so as you, as you said earlier, Trump is being legally challenged in quite a few de- uh, states that are traditionally uh, blue. So how do you think, um, what do you think about the implication of this uh, Colorado ruling nationwide for him? Professor? Well, not much. Just before I came on your show, I checked the polling and, and you know, 60 percent of Americans who identify as Republicans are, are going to vote for Trump. Uh, no matter what he did, doesn't make any difference. You know, mm-hmm. his his polling seems to go up with the more trouble he's in. Yes, he's in trouble, but most of the cases against him are fairly exaggerated. You know, he cooked the books for the company and this thing and that thing. And he took secret records home and all these cases that his critics think uh, uh, amount to a hill of beans. They They really don't. The question is, and his critics within the Republican Party, like former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, said that, this case and the other charges against Trump mm. suggest that he's just unfit to be president of the United States. Now, Trump's my 14th president in my lifetime. And as uh, soon as you start talking about whether people are morally fit to be president or leader, you're, you're in a kind of a, a very, you're in the weeds. You know, it's pretty hard to <laughs> prove who's fit and unfit for high office. Mm. Well, talking about the election, I mean, who are the main contenders on the Republican side at this time? Well, you know, the, um, uh, the, 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 the former governor of, of uh, South Carolina, Nikki Haley, has uh, got about 30% of the, uh, the vote in places like Iowa and maybe New Hampshire, but she's well behind uh, Trump, who's, uh, who's in the 60s. There's actually no, nobody close to him. Mm. You know, even, uh, um, you know, it, it's in this sense, it's a rerun of 2016, where Trump was up against 16 people, and they were all fighting each other till the end, and he just glided through. He just, like a good race car driver, he just went through the pile. And it's the same thing happening again. Everybody wants to be president. Mm-hmm. They're not going to not gonna gang up on him or turn their votes over to the other guys. So I think Trump's going to have a pretty easy run at the primary. And as you know, people in your country may or may not know, even if Trump is uh, convicted, and if he has a custodial sentence, he's sent to prison for something. Uh, the president, the Constitution of the United States says there's no reason, even if he's convicted, why he can't be elected president. And there's no reason why he can't uh, uh, hold forth or he can't run his government from jail. Well, I mean, I don't know where the well, Secret Service well, is going to go. But the US, uh, you know, there are no rules. Mm, the U.S. Uh, legal system is indeed a very complex uh, system. Uh, but one more word, uh, Professor. So... If if um I mean Trump is definitely entering the race for 2024. I mean, does that mean that U.S. politics will probably become more polarized? Uh, it couldn't be more polarized than it is now. Look, there are people saying mm-hmm. that this polarization is leading to the you know the end of the American Republic. Uh, look, uh, this is the people say this who don't know any history. Uh, America's had about 200 mm-hmm. years of stress and strain on the American Republic, particularly during the, the 1930s with the rise of uh, fascism and Hitler and all the rest of it. America's gone through some very tough t- And, you know, America is a tough place. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 the politics in America are, are with no gloves on. It's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty mm-hmm. much fisticuffs. And, and well. it's, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a place for the faint-hearted, particularly if you want to run for government. It's mm-hmm. always been tough to be a politician there, and it's been tough to win. Uh, and Trump is definitely behind the ball here. That is, he's trying to uh, win an election after he lost an election. That puts him in a private, very small club. So he's got all the odds against him. But on the other hand, you know, Trump's, uh, I hate to say this, a little bit like Godzilla. He just keeps coming back to life and doesn't well, stop. Mm. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this uh, ruling will be taken at the U.S. highest court. But uh, thank you. We appreciate your your time and your insights uh, on this topic. That was Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Energy ministers of the European Union have agreed to extend its emergency cap on gas prices for another 12 months as a safeguard against possible energy price shocks. The EU first agreed on the gas price limit in December 2022, after months of crippling high energy prices caused by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The price cap was due to expire in February of 2024 and will now continue till the end of January 2025. The EU's gas price cap has never kicked in. It is designed to apply if European gas prices exceed 180 euros per megawatt hour, a level the benchmark EU gas price has not reached. Now, for more, we're joined by Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. Aina, good to have you back. Always nice to be here. Thank you. Now, Aina, uh, how do you understand the consideration of these energy ministers in the extension? Mostly ceremonial. Um, right now, you know, gas is at about 34 euros per uh, unit, um, and nowhere near the 180. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. The sources of uh, non-Russian gas have been found, and currently the gas storage tanks are full or near full. So. I think they're just trying to send a message that they're somehow doing something. I mean, this is not a good time for Europe, especially given the the economics of France and Germany going negative. Um, Inflation still running high. Mm. Well, we're again in winter, I mean, in the northern hemisphere. So um, we're now more than a year into the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I mean, how is the state of the energy market in EU countries right now? Well, it's not good. I mean, you're, you're seeing, especially in Germany, a deindustrialization that's happening. Uh, you've seen companies flee um, Germany simply because they cannot produce there um, uh, competitively. Uh, you have BASF, the giant chemical maker, which has basically mothballed its factories there, moved most of the production to China. They had a huge uh, factory coming online. Uh, and they have to do it because they use uh, energy uh, both in terms of the feedstock uh, in terms of you know the energy that goes in the process, but also they use energy, um, gas um, and hydrocarbons in the making of their chemicals. So a double whammy. Uh, they mm-hmm. had to get out in order to save the business. Um, but this is not. Um, this is a story that's that's being told throughout many industries uh, in Germany, and you know with the global uh, slowdown uh, affecting them. Uh, you know you, it's basically both countries have slipped into recession, and these are the supposed powerhouses of Europe. Mm. Well, um, let's go back a little. I mean, what has been uh, the function or influence of this gas uh, price cap since it was set up a year ago? Well, I mean, it just hasn't accomplished uh, what it was supposed to do. I mean, Mm. the the idea behind uh, the price cap was to limit uh, Russia's um, development. Uh, But what you've seen is transshipments being arranged, especially through India. Uh, China has bought more uh, uh, Russian energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, there are other places. Very curiously, they do not produce a lot of oil, but suddenly they're shipping a lot of oil out there. And those are places both in the uh, Southeast Asia and also in the Middle East. So um, obviously, you know, uh, Russians, uh, Russia's economy this year is going to grow by 3%. You contrast that with what's happening in Europe, and you see a tale of two very different uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I remember almost a year ago, there were talks about uh, the U.S. Uh, constructing a gas pipeline to send uh, America's energy to the European continent. Uh, but we haven't heard much from after that. 
So, what's been the development on that end? Um, I wouldn't uh, be betting on it. <laughs> right. There is a way of shorting that idea. I would definitely do it. I mean, uh, the you know the U.S. right now is quite content to send energy to Europe at um, in essence three times the price of what you would cost to use it in the U.S. Uh, I'm talking about natural gas, and as a result, um, that is what is making Europe complete, completely um, <laughs> comparatively uncompetitive. Uh, remember that it's Europe and the United States that are the main competitors, in, uh, especially in a, a number of fields, um, you know, whether it's aircraft and uh, automobiles, etc. So mm. uh, it's it's um, it's not something the U.S. is going to rush to do. Uh, the oil pipeline would benefit Europe; it would not benefit the U.S. And right now, the U.S. is pretty much uh, make America first. Uh, and that does not mean helping others necessarily. Mm. Well, moving forward, um, how do you think the energy issue will continue to influence uh, EU's position on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, if it does influence? Well, I, I think the influence overall is, is economic. Uh, you're seeing a downturn already. You're seeing uh, many people saying, "Why are we supporting a war when, you know, I, I you know, my cost inflation is running high. Um, I've lost my job." Um, you know, benefits are going down. Uh, the economy is no good. Um, there are so many other concerns out there. People um, are getting tired of uh, the Ukraine issue. They still feel viscerally that they're that somehow they were wrong, despite um, you know the history of of NATO um, kind of pushing into that area. Um, they're not going to give that up, but they're not willing to support it. Uh, the U.S. had thought that um, they could walk away from it in, in the sense that. They didn't have to donate more money, and you see a lot of foot dragging on Capitol Hill about um, money going to uh, Ukraine. Mm. Uh, a lot of people in the military thought, well, it doesn't really matter because if we stop giving them things, the Europeans will have to buy it for the Ukrainians right. uh, because they're all U.S. Uh, weapon systems and things like that. So a very complex uh, scenario. We'll see what happens. Mm. Well, talking about you know the attitude from the United States, uh, Biden talks talked about you know uh, their plan a few days ago, saying that we'll help as 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 long as we could, uh, something like that. I mean, does this attitude will this attitude influence the mindset uh, or the approach of the European Union? Well, unfortunately. Right? For the uh, Washington, it's reminding people that the U.S. is not a reliable partner. Uh, if you recall, you know, a, a year ago, even six months ago, there were these loud protestations that it would, whatever it took, um, you know, Ukraine would never be abandoned. Uh, you had, uh, you know, people like Lindsey Graham saying it was the best investment they made because no, you know, no body bags are coming to the U.S. and yet they're weakening Russia. Well, Russia isn't being. Uh, at least not so far. Mm. Uh, their economy is going better than uh, Europe's. Um, and quite frankly, you know, the U.S. is wavering. Uh, people are thinking about Afghanistan, Iraq, so many places the U.S. has been where they basically just ran out of steam and said, we're leaving. Mm. Well, the energy issue is always uh, one of the most important, you know, uh, surrounding the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Thank you, Ina. We appreciate your time and insight. Ina Tangan, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. This is World Today. Stay with us. As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one -on -one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Japanese conglomerate Toshiba was delisted on Wednesday after 74 years on the Tokyo Exchange. This follows a decade of upheaval and scandal that brought down one of Japan's biggest brands. The conglomerate is currently being taken private by a group of investors led by private equity firm Japan Industrial Partners. Toshiba has been a maker of batteries, chips, and nuclear and defense equipment. Now, for more, we're joined by Chen Jiahe. He is 
Chief Investment Officer at Nov Arcade Technologies. Thank you, Jiahe, for joining us again.、Uh, hello there. Thank you. Now, Jiahe,、uh, what's your initial reaction to this news? Because Toshiba, you know, it's been always been there. It seems like. Well, I mean that—that's actually well. We, we know this has been going on for about a few months. I mean, Toshiba said it got privatized. So this is,、uh, you know, when this finally came down, it's, it's a kind of pity because Toshiba has been a very、uh, famous name in the Japanese industry. You know, getting privatization doesn't mean this company、uh, will no longer exist. It will still be there, just not、uh, publicly trading. But just look at this company, how successful. Successful, it has been、uh, once in a while, and、um, now it just got delisted from a market where it has been listing. I, I think it's from 1970,、uh, 1949. So it's been been about 74 years, something like that. So、mm-hmm. so it's been you know、uh, something like three fourths of a century. It's been listed there, and it's now delisting,、uh, and it's delisting not because you know the companies are pretty good, the valuation is low, so people get privatized. It's it's not this case. It's that this financial statement is actually. Uh, really looking much、uh, worse compared with like a decade ago, so it's it's quite a pity, I would say.、Mm, yeah, I rem- if my memory serves me correct,、uh, I remember Toshiba was the company that、uh, created the first laptop. Or a computer、uh, in Japan, and we are all quite familiar with the the、uh, advertisement、uh, of the company、uh, back a few decades ago. Well,、uh, Jiahe, walk us through the turbulence、uh, surrounding Toshiba in the past few years. I mean, how did the company arrive at where it is right now? Well, it's, it's actually been quite、uh, a series of events. It, it initially started from the you know the earthquake that destroyed the nuclear plant in Japan back in、uh, 2011,、mm-hmm. and then this company's nuclear、uh, because it initially well before that it has got a lot of income from producing nuclear. Power-related、uh, equipments, but after that, because Japan stored its、uh, new、uh, planting of nuclear plants, and many countries did that. I mean, China actually did that,、uh, suspended its growth、uh, growth of new、uh, nuclear plants. Uh, for about, I think it's about six or seven years. People just got scared, you know, because、mm-hmm. that earthquake,、uh, together with the tsunami, just destroyed a whole、uh, nuclear plant. So、uh, Toshiba got hit with that because it lost a large amount of its income from that. And later on, in 2015, it got a financial scandal, which is which is even worse, I'd say, because the 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 the, the tsunami that caused the nuclear plant. To destroy, to be destroyed, is not this company's problem because it it, it actually sells、mm-hmm. the equipment.、Um, it, it's actually the, the electricity generating company that's got the problem. But with this financial scandal, it actually、uh, took a lot of bad things for this company back in、uh, 2015. Basically, because people say, okay, it's it's not because you have a bad luck. You got a you know a false financial statements. That that's、right. something really hard to be forgiven. And later on.、Uh, After 2015,、uh, 2015, later on, this company kept on facing a lot of, you know, competition from the Chinese products, South Korean products,、uh, Vietnam products. It got more and more competition in the global market. And later on, it also got some disputes with its management. That is, some of the Japanese managers are actually conflicting with the,、uh, you know, Western investors who bought the shares as well. So it、mm-hmm. got a series of、uh, problems, and finally,、uh, it came over to this. Uh, you know this uh, situation. Mm. Well, Jiahe, what does it mean for Toshiba to go private? Well, going private, as I just said, it it doesn't mean、uh, actually. If you look at the operation of the company, it really doesn't mean much things. It keeps on operating under the name of Toshiba, and it's probably good for this company because it will be under one management. It doesn't have to disclose all its information to the market. It can concentrate on its operation. Uh, and you know, it doesn't really have to care about how the capital market thinks, because in in many cases, you can see that the capital market is、uh, not always supporting a company. Sometimes it actually stop、uh, stops the company from developing. For example, if the leader of a company makes a very accurate decision, saying that we we want to go to that direction in the、mm-hmm. next two decades, but the capital market, you know,、uh, composed by millions of investors, say, okay, you're wrong. That、uh, and 
Uh, and they will stop this component from going that direction. And if that leader is actually right, then this will stop the component from growing. This has actually happened for many times in the past. Mm. So, I mean, Toshiba currently, I look at stock price. The stock price is not very good in the past few years. So the capital market definitely is not helping this company much. I mean, partly because it got through this financial scandal, because, uh, you know, capital market... Uh, the equity market investors don't like a company that has got a financial scandal because that means you're lying, you know, in some cases. Maybe you've got another scandal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in uh, five years later. Who knows that? Mm-hmm. So it's actually, I think it's a pretty good choice for them to get delisted. I mean, it's uh, not much meaning for them to keep on listing. And maybe under private management, uh, you know, uh, Toshiba can make make some, uh, you know, good decisions in the next few years and win the market back again. You know, that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, Jiahe, uh, as you said earlier, Toshiba has been experiencing uh, deep-rooted management issues over the past few years where the company just kept expanding, but shareholders wanted something uh, about value of the company. I mean, what's your analysis on that? And is, it, is the Toshiba issue typical among Japanese con- conglomerates? Well, uh, the, the management issue with uh, Toshiba has been that, you know, uh, the Japanese managers wanted to manage the company in a Japanese way, and the, uh, you know, the, the managers from uh, the global market wants another way. So there, there came a conflict. Because if you look at the uh, corporate culture in Japan, it's actually very different from either China or Western world. I mean, mm-hmm. Japanese culture is very, very unique. So it's very hard for any international or global investor to to fit into that environment and cooperate very well with the Japanese. It's it, it's really a hard thing. I mean, Japanese people have a culture that's really different. I mean, it's different from South Korea. It's different from China, which many people say, okay, you're you're both Asian people. You might think the same way. It doesn't. So Japanese uh, company always have a unique culture. So so it might be a good idea for them to you know just get one culture in the company. Uh, maybe that culture is not the best because you can see that the Japanese economy has actually been stalled after the 1990s. So it's been about three decades for the economic growth to to be close to zero. So it might not be that good a culture, but it it can be a you know it can be better than there is a conflicting of the culture between a Japanese culture and an international culture. So so that's even worse. So mm-hmm. maybe just it's better for them to be under one management. Mm-hmm. Well, this is um, uh, one of the, you know, the interesting topics that uh, has grabbed, um, you know, global headlines, especially among business media. Um, thank you. That was Chen Jiahe, Chief uh, Investment Officer at Nov Arcade Technologies. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of the headlines. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi exchanges views about bilateral relations with New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Winston Peters. A number of international institutions and banks expect global growth to slow in 2024. The Supreme Court in the U.S. state of Colorado barred Donald Trump from the state's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.